1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Ludwig von Beethoven was born in Bonn, Germany, in December of 1770, but there is much debate on the exact date he was born. Scholars believe he was born on December 16th due to his baptism being on the 17th, and in that time and place, infants were usually baptized the day after their birth. Later this hour, W.A.B.E. music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart will share some insights and stories behind one of the greatest composers of all time. But first, let's hear about the mother of the blues.
2: August Wilson's play. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is based on a real-life musician known as the Mother of the Blues. The story is set in a Chicago recording studio in 1927. During the course of a single day, Wilson's drama is stunning. And now, there is a film version of Ma Rainey, Adapted for screen by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Coleman Domingo is part of the superb cast. He joins us now via Zoom. Coleman, welcome back to City
0: Lights. Oh, thank you so much, Lois. It's so nice to be back here with you.
2: You play the role of Cutler, a trombonist
0: who leads the band. I do, I do. Cutler served, (laughs) yes, I'll tell you about him. Yeah. Cutler serves as, he serves as the proxy for Ma Rainey, who was a legendary blues singer, who was openly gay, who was really a pioneer in blues music, known as the mother of the blues. And I'm basically, you know, I'm entrusted to be the band leader, to also be the, in the band leader's role is, he's one of the members of the band. He also does Ma's bidding, uh, <laughs> in every single way, and he's also the first person that you know. Recording executives, you know, you know, sort of the systemic racist systems see when when they enter a room. So he's uh, he's the navigator, and he's the one who's trying to keep things on task and serve Ma well, since Ma has sort of granted him power in this structure, uh, especially when they you know, especially as entertainers, but you name it, as African Americans in 1927. You think we're fighting systemic racism now? <laughs> there was a whole other story back then.
2: <laughs> unreal, unreal. Now, I see Cutler as a diplomat. And part of the reason I think that he represents Marwell and deals with the white recording studio folks is that he's very refined and yes. uh, quite self confident.
0: Hmm. I agree. I agree. It's funny. I, although this one gentleman was, you know, decades later, I sort of found a bit of Nat King Cole in him.
1: You, ah. know,
0: pretty, you, you know what I mean? Something about having that grace and knowing that, knowing his place in society and knowing that he's trying to um, not ruffle any feathers, knowing how he has to present himself to white America, also, but then he's still essentially one of the men in the band.
2: Yeah, and it was when you had co-written, directed the play Lights Out that we last spoke. I'm still hoping yeah. that that will become a movie. Stay oh, tuned. I, I,
0: stay tuned, stay tuned. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Minimally to travel with it. I was curious. Do you play trombone?
0: Lois? I learned to look uh, <laughs> I learned to look as if I play very well, but I, I became proficient enough because the beautiful thing about this film is when we were cast by George C. Wolf, who was a legendary theater director, he was very sneaky. He didn't tell us how proficient we needed to be. So you know you're working with you know some of the heavyweights in the theater industry and in the film industry and you, you took it to task, you, you just want it to be amazing. So they sent you coaches to wherever you were and you just absorbed as much as possible because, and then also you knew that Branford Marsalis was uh, our music director and supervisor. And so you wanted to please him. So you don't want to let anyone down, especially yourself. So we studied a lot uh, for five weeks and had uh, extensive training.
2: Daddy, daddy. Please come on to me oh. I'm on my way, crazy It is evident. I mean, hmm. the first time you did that slide, I thought, damn. <laughs> he played in a high school marching band.
0: I love it, Lois. If I got you, Lois, if I got you, I think I did my job well. There. Thank you, Lois. <laughs> like,
2: well deserved. I think I have mentioned to you we have a close friend here in Atlanta, the Reverend Dwight Andrews. Yes who wrote the original music for the Broadway production of Ma Rainey. And my husband and I were so amazed by the music on stage when we saw the show in 1985. We couldn't figure out if they were musicians who could act or actors who were able to play those instruments. And when I met Dwight... I asked him, how did that work? And he laughed. He said that he worked with August in the casting because the musicians had to be believable. And in fact, they were actors, but they auditioned more than 200 actors because they wanted some who at least could get the semblance
0: Okay. Yeah, you want you, because you need you need that authenticity, and I guess and I do know that like Glenn Turman, Michael Potts, myself, Viola, and Chavik Bozeman in particular are. It's funny. I think the only one who hasn't done a musical was Viola, but she can she can actually sing. She can actually carry a tune. She just has never done it in her career. But everyone had the acumen and had the inquisitiveness and had the. Uh, we're all sort of you know workhorses. We will we will, I think that's uh, what we love to do. It's like set ourselves up with something that we have to learn because it's required, you know?
2: I think that's called artistry.
0: Yeah, okay, that's a great way. That's a great word for it. It's artistry. Yes, yes, I'll take that. I'll take that.
2: Good. But you didn't have to play the trombone for Branford Marcellus.
0: Oh no, I sure did. I had to play. <laughs> oh, I had to. It? Yes, I had to play it for him. I had to. We actually had to like croak out notes in front of Branford Marcellus. And to be very honest, by the fourth week of rehearsal, I thought we were pretty good. Now I don't think I don't think we would be great to record it, but I think you would understand some semblance of the songs. Oh wow. <laughs>
2: How would you describe the other members of the band?
0: Oh, what a beautiful question. We were cast, I thought, perfectly. Glenn Turman, who was a a legend in theater and film. You know, he was the little boy, um, Travis, in the original production of Raisin in the Sun. He's steeped in history. It's just running through his veins. So it made sense that he played the character of Toledo. And then you have Michael Potts, who is um whos who has been doing musical theater and and showing up on television screens and, and films for years. And he's just a really very easy human being. He, he you could tell he has a grace and a dignity to him, and, a, and, a, and he's willing to have a good time. And that's actually what his character slow drag. His slow drag is always trying to sort of mediate and just say, can we just get on with it, get our work done and have a good time, have a little bourbon. And then you have uh, I will get to Chadwick Bozeman in a second, but then you have myself as Cutler. I pride myself on being an incredible host. If I don't know anything about myself, I'm an incredible host and a great facilitator. Um, that's the producer in me. And I know that that's part of uh, what I needed to lean into with Cutler. He was willing to take on the responsibility to make sure that everything is working and everything is um, everyone has what they need to do the best job. And then there's Chadwick Bozeman, who was absolutely spirited and inquisitive and a bit of a, um, I don't know, a disruptor in our industry by, um, by really being so uh, full of heart and purpose when it came to his work, which is why he played you know, incredible legends like Jackie Robinson and, and Chala and, and James Brown, you name it. So I think that he was very much in alignment with Levy. He has so much heart in his spirit. It was just bursting forth, you know, just like Levy. And then you have Ma. Who can play Ma? Who else could play Ma today but Viola Davis, who has so much size, heart, and humanity, and she's ferocious. Oh, she's more. But she's sort of, her natural uh, ferocity comes in sort of a quiet manner. She's sort of a, a lioness, but very quiet and stealth. But this required her to bring that out and have some size with it. And I thought that was beautiful. So I think that we were... All we were cast, you know, and also, you know, you know, there's also Desi May, played by Taylor Page, and a few others, uh, Jeremy and Johnny, and Dusan, who are all, I think, just really close to the characters in some way that we we could tap into a part of ourselves.
2: In the rehearsal room, early in the story, as you and the other members of the band share your stories, joke around, philosophize. We experience the music of August Wilson's language. As an actor, Coleman, what is it like to be immersed in those exchanges?
0: Oh, wow. It feels like you've hit the jackpot. Because when you're working with um, heavyweights, and I refer to my castmates as absolute heavyweights, like Muhammad Ali and, and Frazier and Foreman, Everyone is willing to do the work and leaving nothing behind. No one's bringing ego into the room. They're bringing a sense of play. They're bringing a sense, they they wanna um, examine everything and inquire. And also they they want to lean into the work uh, so fully and be fully invested. And so that's the spirit that was there. And we also laughed a whole lot. We really enjoyed one another because I think that we had tremendous respect for one another and what they were bringing. And so you want it. So I think, we, you know, it's like really playing with the most exceptional blues band and making music together and leaving room for each other and, and knowing the engine of of the scenes and who plays what notes, to be very honest. You know that you know that you're a trombone and you know that you're a trumpet and you're supposed to play those notes. And that's what we're doing. You know, it wouldn't make sense for my character to play the notes that Levy would play or to lean lay back as Toledo would on piano and just focus on the melody. I think that, you know, it was fun. It was uh, a happy space. I think there was um, a sense of greater purpose because we knew we were responding to the incredible text that August Wilson affords us, which is such complexity when it comes to African-American life in the 20th century. And everyone has a complex and interesting arc. No one is just peripheral. We are all, you know, full, fully realized human beings that speak like, that act like, that move like, that respond to things as African-Americans know that African-Americans do. And so I thought it's a great... So it's um, a privilege to be in that room, to be honest.
2: In this story, Wilson includes dialogue about the meaning of art ma says to you music keeps things balanced and you sing because that's a way of understanding life yeah and when she says it would be an empty world without the blues. Without
0: the blues. Oh,
2: God, I have chills now just repeating that line. But the character of Levy, this young trumpeter, believes his new style of music is superior to the blues and bold enough to take on Ma Rainey herself. Why does she resent him?
0: I think because you have one character that is sort of at the end of their career and one at the beginning, and they're asking for the same thing, to be heard, to be seen. I think Ma is examining her own legacy, and I think she's trying to uh, be, I and mean, she's already a, a, a woman and a character who is steeped in, <laughs> she's steeped in her own trauma, just like everyone else in the, in the play is. She is also a pioneer. I mean, she's in a male-dominated industry. She is an openly gay African-American woman in 1927. Good Lord, she's fighting so many systems. And I think what, what they also got really right, they always described Ma as looking wet. Her makeup, the grease paint, all that stuff, that she was always a little hot. I think she had a fire inside of her, and she was just trying to have agency in the world. And, and be respected and because she knew she had talent and she just wanted to um, the world to meet her with that talent. And I think then you have Levy, who's trying, you know, he's just, you know, he's trying to innovate. He's trying to, he's, he's saying, no, we should push it forward. We don't have to do that old stuff. We can, he, he's, he's ready to change the world now. And then you have his other bandmates saying, just give it a minute. Because I think everyone has their own stuff that they're protective of, that they're trying to unpack, that they're trying to work through. And some of them are just trying to get through the day and just, you know, and have some peace in the world as um, African-American, That I, I mean, every African-American knows that. He's trying to get some peace in the world and, and find your place. And Levy is, is, is interested in disrupting that. To create a new sound and to and to have and to say, I demand my work will I will break through these uh, white supremacist systems. I don't have to believe that. I have new thought and and you. So I believe you need a little bit of both. That the, I think the reason why their their ideologies are bumping up up against each other, as well as Cutler and Levies, is because at the end of the day, I think that's good for progress. You know, <laughs> in some way. There's some losses with that, but it's basically, you know, this push and pull of people who actually really want the same thing. They're just using, they have very different operating systems in the way they're trying to achieve it.
2: Levy emphasizes the urban appeal and sophistication of his style versus...
0: Ma's ra- Ma's blue, low-down blues. Yeah, yeah more
2: <laughs> small town inflected yeah. blues And your character says, "You play the music you don't criticize. Yet I have the sense that were it not for Ma the band might enjoy playing some of the jazz that's... I, you know what?
0: That's a, that's a great observation, Lewis, because I actually thought part of one of my character's secrets, I believe, that you know an actor likes to imbue their character with a secret. I believe that Cutler really, truly admires Levy. He really does. But he's also beholden to Ma, saying, but this is Ma band, Ma's band. He understands Levy has talent. He thinks he's extraordinary. That's why he made sure he was a part of the band, and that's why he tries to protect him when he's not even in the room with Ma, uh, with the the boys in the band. When he's with Ma, um, he defends Levy, and I think that's a a great surprise, and that tells you a lot about how he feels about him. He just believes that he's fiery and spirited, but he's got great talent. So I think that's why he wants, wants him around. He's just trying to help him temper that and fold into Ma's band.
1: Actor Coleman Domingo speaking with Lois Reitzes about the new film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. We will be back with more of their conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Wright's, thank you for listening. Let's return to more of Lois's conversation with actor Coleman Domingo. He plays Cutler in the new film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The film was based on August Wilson's play of the same name. The film will be released in select theaters and on Netflix December
2: 18th. The entire cast is sensational. That sounds like an understatement. It is an ensemble in the best sense of the word and I know that for many viewers seeing Ma Rainey will be a sad reminder that it was the last role for the actor Chadwick Boseman who died just a few months ago at age 43 Coleman is it painful for you to talk about working with him on this film
0: ah I go back and forth. <laughs> Most of the time, I think it's a, an honor and a joy. And I I love when I'm able to discuss Chad and his work, his body of work, his work ethic, his dry wit, his um, sense of purpose, his true sense of purpose. So I, I love talking about that because I also want to remember him um, with all that life that he had and how alive he was, I think. That's my last memory of him. I didn't see him when he was ill. I saw him when he was, well, he was ill, but the person that I saw was very much alive and with good humor and great spirit and open, and we we shared a real brotherhood. And then there are times like I would even say an hour ago when I I was preparing myself for some more interviews, and uh, you know I'm getting a lot of questions about Chad, and I wanted to get some more context, and so I watched his uh, commencement speech uh, for Howard University, where he received his Doctor of Humane Letters. And it was a commencement speech, but then he actually turned it into a sermon. And I had to get myself together because um, there were things that I I knew about Chad and I knew him as as an artist, a musician, you know, a comrade who I worked with, But in that speech, in in that commencement speech, I saw that he was very clear about his purpose and why he was here on this earth and what he was trying to do and trying to move the dial on all of our humanity. I understood even more so why he was cast as these legends in quick succession. And that's an extraordinary feat for any actor because he had that sense of purpose in him that he wanted to, I, I don't know, tell great stories about incredible black men.
2: I didn't want to force you to talk about it if you didn't want
0: to. Oh, no. I, listen, Lois, you and I are old friends now. I don't mind sharing with you. God bless you.
2: Now, though the action takes place in 1927, watching this film is eerie, almost terrifying and how much it relates to to our moment in 2020, in the first few minutes, Ma Rainey is confronted and insulted by a policeman. Coleman, what are your reflections on Ma Rainey as a contemporary story?
0: I think it's always important for us, especially as Americans to dive deep into history and find out more about ourselves so we can move forward. We, you know, we have amnesia as a country and uh, because it's deeply painful. But I think if we show the systemic problems that have been in place for many years with many individuals, individuals just trying to, you know, find some agency in the world, I think that we could have a bit more empathy to one another, a bit more compassion. I know that I, I I thought it was very important in the middle of this pandemic and in the middle of so much racial strife, when friends were asking, should I read White Fragility and things like that? I said, no, I think you, I have a list of films you should watch. I want to show you Black life. And especially Black life when white people aren't around and Black people are talking about things that matter to them. So you can see that and see what's in the hearts of people. So it brings you closer to them. You understand their struggle is your struggle and, and understand what, what, what's in place and, and be, being having a more of an awareness Of the systems that are in place to keep us behind and then you can make a choice on how to help move forward and not and be an ally a true ally because we need to know each other's families and what makes us hurt and how people try to just move through the world and try to get from point a to point b and a lot of times i mean even in that scene with ma Rainey, she's just trying to get in to record her album and just one little you know, accident uh, in the car, it, throw, it throws everything off and brings the system tumbling down on her. And she's just trying to, say, and she's just trying to speak her truth, but she's never been allowed to speak, you know? Um, so I think um, she's a great figure to examine. She's a great figure to examine as an artist, as a woman, as a, a gay woman. She's a phenomenal character to examine. And, and it's done with so much grace and good humor <laughs> and intelligence. Uh, and I love what George C. Wolf, our director, has done. He's created this great visual language and this great, um, he's opened up this play in a beautiful, beautiful way that I feel like is a gift to everyone in 2020. Yes.
2: I have to say that in terms of what should qualify as a prize winning performance, your scene with the character of Levy talking about God, I will never forget. My God, how intense that must have been for you
0: both. It was. It, it brought up everything. It brought up everything that you may feel in your heart. Um, those possible questions that even if you are deeply a person of faith, that you may have to question at times when terrible things happen to good people. You know, we've witnessed so many atrocities in recent years of whether it's shootings and killings happening to children and to people in synagogues and churches. And yet we're taught, and and especially with faith, to to continue to believe, believe that it's God. Believe, believe, believe. And then someone comes along every so often, like the character of Levy, and questions that because of his own experience. And he's pulling out receipts, basically. And he's saying, my experience is this. My mother was raped in front of these men. I was cut across my chest, all that. And we were God-fearing people. Where was God when that happened? So he's angry at God. And actually, I think he has a right to be angry because we're taught to not be angry. In this moment, he is absolutely angry because it's just what's been presented to him. And he's like, I wanna question all that. And I think it also breaks his heart. So we had to go that deep. I had to wrestle with him with those questions as an actor. Um, And then you you wanna bring a part of yourself into anything. And so you have these two men of faith wrestling with these questions about God's will. And it broke us down to the point that at the end of that scene, we just embraced each other and cried because it it breaks our hearts. That's, um, I think it's a secret in, in many, people of faith, in, in their hearts. You know, there's a secret. that you're like, I don't want to believe that. I'm going to make a choice not to believe that. But then what if that doubt seeps in? It can bring you to your knees. And I think that's what that scene is.
1: Actor Coleman Domingo speaking with Lois Reitzis. The film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom will be released in select theaters and on Netflix December 18th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Wrights thank you for listening. December 16th marks the 250th birth anniversary of the legendary composer Ludwig von Beethoven. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart joined Lois to talk about the influential life of Beethoven in our 250
3: Beethoven series.
1: He began by explaining how Ludwig's life can be broken up into four distinct time periods.
3: So that first time zone that we look at, which goes from when he was a kid up until about 1802 or so, includes pieces that he wrote when he was younger, uh, which we call Juvenilia, and music that he composed that reflected the world that he grew up in. So this is Viennese and German classicism. The emphasis here is on balance and clarity and a kind of emotional restraint, not that it was without emotion, but it was often held in check, compared especially to what would be coming up in the wildness of the Romantic era. So in this time we see Beethoven experimenting with piano writing, especially his sonatas. He also starts to flex his orchestra writing muscles and has written a couple of combinations of these two skills with two fairly conventional piano concertos and his first two symphonies. The first of these is very classical, quote-unquote, and the Second Symphony behaves a little bit more like a rebellious teenager that uh, has a little extra expansiveness and a little more Beethoven fire. Hmm.
2: One of the sad characteristics from the early to more mature second period is Beethoven's awareness of his growing deafness. We're not exactly sure when he noticed it, But in 1801, he confessed to his friend and doctor, Franz Wegler, that he had stopped attending social functions for two years because of his hearing problems.
3: We have actually pretty good records about uh, not when he first noticed it, but when he started to have problems, he started trying to find solutions all over the place. His ears hummed and buzzed which you can imagine is the worst possible fate for a composer to have. He tried a number of home remedies, including hot and cold baths, olive oil in his ears, pills, infusions. There are records of piano students going over to have a lesson and he had cotton stuffed in his ears with some kind of yellowish liquid that they'd been dipped in. So we know he was trying lots of quote unquote cures. And so it must have been really difficult for him to know that it was happening and that it was getting worse. But paradoxically, it was during this period of intense depression and anger which he expressed that Beethoven produced some of his most genial and joyful music. In fact, this period of time between 1800 and 1815 is when we see the creation of many of his most famous and well-known compositions.
2: The exquisite piano sonata number 14 in C-sharp minor known as the Moonlight Sonata of Beethoven. We heard Daniel Barenboim in that recording. The tempo is marked quasi una fantasia, almost a fantasy. Music critic Ludwig Rehlstab praised the work, comparing it to Moonlight Shining on a Lake. But that was after Beethoven's death. That was already well into the 19th century.
3: Correct. There were only a couple pieces published during Beethoven's life that had a little subtitle attached to it. And so that is a, a very important point, that it was often publishing companies and marketers that kind of uh, colored up the, the, the marketing presentation of some of this music after Beethoven had died and we're going to start talking about all the different ways that Beethoven was revolutionary in his composing and you can look at different aspects of music like melody and harmony and rhythm and time and modes of expression. And when you talk about individual instruments like the piano um, using pedals and how pianos started to be developed during this time to have much larger range on the right side, the higher side and the left side, the lower side of the piano. And Beethoven really addressed all of these aspects of music composition in turning this corner from the classical era into the romantic era. So here he has, the sonata which has been well fleshed out by Mozart and Haydn and others during his youth typically a sonata is kind of like an Oreo cookie it has three parts it has a fast part and a slow part and then another fast part and that was kind of the typical form of a sonata and it could be for piano or other instruments like violin and with the moonlight sonata this is the 14th sonata Beethoven breaks with this tradition of fast, slow, fast, and starts the piece with this very famous adagio or slow movement. And he marks this movement senza sardini, which means without mutes or without releasing that damper pedal, which makes it much more smoky and gooey and echoey um, for a, a different kind of effect than you would have heard in the cleaner, clearer classical presentation. And, I will admit, Lois, you're a much better pianist than you would ever admit, and much better than I, with my two index fingers pointing, could ever be, (laughs) but uh, you know, some amateurs can give the old college try at the famous opening movement because it's really slow. Now to play it musically well takes a great master, but when you get to this third movement, this is really moving into the realm of the well-practiced virtuoso pianist.
2: The third movement, the stormy finale, is twice as long as the first two movements of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Beethoven may have been inspired by the improvements in piano technology in the 1800s. They had more notes. You mentioned the sustaining pedal, Scott, and they were physically larger. So they opened up great new possibilities for Beethoven's huge range of volumes and intensities and he made the most of this new technology
3: he did and he actually wrote about this piece in his diaries surely i've written better things <laughs> and this may be so but this piece has been recorded by more than 80 different professional pianists and is played the world round and it remains one of his most treasured compositions.
2: Scott Beethoven only held one appointment by the court orchestra in Bonn when he was a very young man. Otherwise, he was a free agent, if you will. When he had established himself in Vienna in his late 20s, he didn't even look for work with the government or the church. Instead, Beethoven was supported by a group of patrons and he was able to earn a living that way, which granted him a tremendous amount of artistic independence.
3: And fortunately for Beethoven, the musical diet of the aristocracy was chamber music. He composed piano trios and string trios, sonatas for piano and cello and violin, And in 1798, Beethoven was commissioned by one of his patrons, this is Prince Franz Maximilian Lobkowitz, to compose six string quartets. So that's four movements each. Now, success with the string quartet genre really was an entry point into another level of musical composition for Beethoven and another level of the aristocracy. So it guaranteed him further sponsorship and financial success.
2: Beethoven spent about two years focusing on string quartet writing, making constant revisions. He probably felt a bit of heat from the very well-established canon of Mozart and Haydn. Supposedly, Beethoven copied out Mozart's entire string quartet in A, Kirchel 464, in order to get a feel for how quartets should be written, getting it into his hand in his mind's ear and seeing that Mozart on the page, he thought he could somehow
3: imbibe it and channel it. Yeah, in these six quartets, that he wrote were published in 1801. This is the same year as the Symphony Number no. 1 by Beethoven. The first of the quartets, the Opus 18 Number no. 1, is an F major, the happy little key, and it ended up demonstrating Beethoven's composing style in the string quartet genre, which, as you say, did not come easily, and he spent lots of time reflecting and practicing on.
2: Yeah, Mozart was legendary for composing in his head and then transcribing the music in score form with almost no errors or revisions. This was genius. Manuscripts of Bach and Mozart are spotless and perfect in their own hand. Beethoven, on the other hand, seemed to struggle over every note. His scores are... Chaotic, messy, and indecipherable notes, crossed out measures and scratches, kinda like the man himself.
3: Yes. And I'm kinda if there if he were podcasting, I'm sure there would be lots of bleeps and bloops that would have to be edited (laughs) out. I just get the feeling that he really, really worked. And I think that's one reason why we love Beethoven so much. We sometimes View Mozart and Bach and others as these musical deities that were you know perfect in every way and didn't have struggle and stuff just came that's oversimplified of Of course. course of course they all worked but beethoven clearly had to um really sit down and maybe there was some insecurity maybe there was experimentation there just was a real human being with flaws and doubts behind the writing and it's it's kind of fun to look at the sketchbooks and see how Hard. He really worked before the final product was produced. The first of these quartets, the Opus 18, number one, in F major, he sent the entire score to a friend of his with the instructions, do not circulate this. (laughs) Do not show it to a soul. And in the meantime, while it was being looked at, he kind of redid the entire piece. And you can compare the one he sent to his friend with the final one. Every measure has been changed, every single measure. But it's a stunning first string quartet. Here it is, the string quartet in F major.
2: Beethoven's String Quartet number 1 in F, played by the Smetana Quartet, a witty and cheerful work with the influence of Franz Josef Haydn, Beethoven's teacher. But the players have to deal with Beethoven's faster tempos, as well as his challenging and complex musical lines crossing each other, what's known as counterpoint so while it's graceful and balanced like the works of his predecessors in this string quartet we begin to detect an edge
3: yeah it's kind of like the growth chart that a lot of families keep on their wall as their kids get taller <laughs> you can start to measure beethoven's beethovenness through the development of these early quartets. The second string quartet in G is also a very sunny piece. Again, thinking about what was going on psychologically in Beethoven's personal life, remarkable that he's churning out this really delightful music. The fourth movement is especially playful. I just love it. And the, the cello kind of takes the lead here by inviting all the other kids in the quartet to come out and play.
2: Yes, Scott and I am reminded of my freshman year in college, when um, my theory professor made the point of demonstrating that composers don't have to be happy to write happy-sounding music, and similarly, you can be blissfully happy and write tragic-sounding music, same with playwrights and authors, of course. This second string quartet earned the nickname Quartet, or the quartet of bows and curtsies. This playful work is full of good humor and wit, but Beethoven still asserts his individuality in the form of dramatic thrusts and surprises.
3: Yeah, and this is also one of the quartets where we get a glimpse of Beethoven's later practice of Interrelating thematic materials among different movements in the work. The older practice was just to have four contrasting movements that may or may not have been able to be played by themselves. Now Beethoven's starting to think more holistically in, in connecting ideas among different movements. This will also start to happen in his symphonies pretty soon. So the bridge or the transition theme of the first movement of the second quartet is a really sweet little tune that sounds like this. And then the opening of the fourth rambunctious movement is undeniably similar in shape to that theme. So this is kind of like an author or a poet who ties up all of the plots and the subplots at the end of a novel or maybe think about an interior decorator who uses a, a color scheme or a design concept to connect different rooms in a house. Beethoven uses this what we call thematic unity in many later works including in the famous fifth symphony with the bum, 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 kind of occurring hundreds of times throughout the symphony.
2: Things take a darker turn in the dramatic quartet, opus 18, number four, which is now in the key of C minor. That's the key of Beethoven's famous Appassionata Sonata and the Fifth Symphony, among others. Beethoven returns to this key for. Expressing high drama
3: and tragic content, yeah. And now we're hearing some of the Sturm und Drang, the the storm and stress of a very moody Beethoven. We have a nervous cello pulse, this very angsty melodic theme, and it seems that we can hear the the musical equivalents of sighing and punching and jabbing.
1: That was W A B E music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. For more information on the music of Beethoven and our 250 series, be sure to check out our website at wabe.org/slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from celebrity hairstylist Tracy Moss. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself, Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and Lois Reitzis is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. You can listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash city lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.